Tonight we're looking at Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah chapter 48, and this chapter, chapter 48, really kind of brings to a close one of the sections of Isaiah from chapter 41 to chapter 48, really focuses on Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, and then the promise of release from Babylonian captivity coming home. And so chapter 48 kind of finishes up that that emphasis in that section. And there is a contrast, kind of a tension in this chapter between Israel's stubbornness and Israel as uh, Isaiah as the prophet reminds Israel of their rebellious heart, of their stubbornness in the past, which brought about the exile in the first place. But then also, even in light of their previous as well as their continued stubbornness, is the opposite of that is God's abundant grace and his willingness to bring deliverance to a people that really didn't deserve it because of that stubbornness and rebellion. And so we see both of those kind of intention in in this chapter. And what Isaiah is really calling the people to do in this chapter is to listen to the Lord's word and to trust him. Because in the past, they've not done either of those. They've not listened to the Lord, and which beyond just listening, that means also obeying and putting into practice. So they haven't listened to the Lord and they have not trusted him. They have persisted in unbelief, turning to idols, but also turning to alliances, human alliances and treaties to to bring them security and hope. And Isaiah is telling them, listen to the Lord and trust in him. And so that's really a major emphasis of this chapter in Isaiah 48. And so the first part is Israel's stubbornness. Verses one through five focuses on just kind of recounting their persistent hard-heartedness in response to the Lord and to his prophets. But he begins by reminding them of their election, the fact that they belong to the Lord, that they're his. And so in verse one, he says, listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. Those three descriptions right there in particular remind the people of Israel of who they are. They're, they're the ones who belong to the Lord. They're his. He set his grace upon Abraham. He set his loving choice upon Isaac. He set his grace upon Jacob. And they are the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. And he is reminding them that who they are is really all because of God's grace. In light of that, it's even more amazing that that they continue to persist in their stubbornness. Someone who has received this much benefit, this much grace, this much love from God should be very open and soft-hearted and open to the Lord's word and his instruction and very reliant upon him, trusting in him. But Israel throughout its history, in spite of that election of God and his loving choice of them, have been stubborn and rebellious. But he reminds them, first of all, of who they are and God's love for them. And then we see Israel's sin. So he reminds them of who they are and the fact that they belong to God because of God's love, but then he reminds them of their sin. And in verse, the last part of verse one and then this into verse two, their sin primarily was hypocrisy. 
hypocrisy and religious ritualism. He says at the last part of verse 1, You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. That's a very serious sin, isn't it? It is even just that by itself, opposed to or isolated from all the other sins that Israel had committed. That in itself, taking the name of the Lord, but not in truth and righteousness, that is a direct violation of the third command, isn't it? Sometimes we think of taking the name of the Lord in vain as curse words or using the Lord's name as a part of a curse or in a flippant way. But it also involves taking the name of the Lord in such as in an oath or in a covenant and then not following through on that and, and not really intending to follow through on that. And so he's calling them out for the fact that they invoke the name of the Lord and they even take oaths in his name, but they're breaking those oaths. They're breaking those covenants and they're not being genuine with their words, and which, which basically profanes the name of the Lord, doesn't it? That's a very serious offense. To take the name of the Lord in vain, God says, I will not hold him guiltless. His condemnation, his judgment will rest on him. And in verse 2, he says, You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. And so it's, it's like he's saying, you claim one thing, but in reality, it's another. It's hypocrisy, isn't it? So hypocrisy and religious ritualism in the sense of the people of Israel would bring sacrifices They would come and worship. They would come and pray and sing songs. And they would kind of just go through the motions. But Isaiah is saying it was empty. It was empty. It wasn't in truth and righteousness. And yet you called on his name, but all to no avail. And so he reminds them of their sin, of hypocrisy and ritualism. And then he describes in verses 3 through 5 their inexcusability. The the fact that because of who they were, because of all that God had done for them, and on top of that, all that God had revealed to them through his word, through his prophets, it left them without excuse. For everything that happened to them in going into captivity, their defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, their affliction in Babylon, they really, there was no excuse for all of that that happened to them because they were abundantly warned. God's word was clear to them. So he reminds them of that inexcusability. He says in verse three, this is the words of the Lord now, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. What's in view here that he calls the former things? Probably what he's referring to here in verses 3, 4, and 5 with the former things is when prophets such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and other prophets, Hosea, when they predicted the fall of Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. Those are the former things. In other words, those are things that have already happened now as these prophecies are unfolding. 
Those are the former things. And, and what God is saying through his prophet Isaiah is you were warned about those things. Prophets came and told you about those things in advance, ahead of time. And you still did not listen. So God abundantly warned through his prophets. But then there came a point in time when he acted on those warnings, didn't he? So there was a time when he was warning them through his prophets, but then there came a time when his patience stopped and he brought to pass that which he had threatened. And he allowed them to be defeated and taken into the hands of the Babylonians. He warned it, then he acted on it. And that's why they're in the situation that they are. He says, for I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron, your forehead was bronze. Very clear imagery, isn't it? A forehead of bronze, it's like nothing's getting in there, right? It's, you know, you're trying to communicate to somebody, you're trying to speak to somebody, you're trying to get in, to penetrate into their mind, into their thinking, there's nothing getting in there. It's just, it's bouncing off. Your neck muscles were iron. It's the idea of just... Well, we've seen this in Exodus recently, too, with the golden calf incident. Stiff neckedness, right? Stiff necked is the idea of being stubborn, of hard hearted. And that's how he describes them here. You're stubborn. Your neck muscles are hard, inflexible. They won't turn. They won't look one way or the other. Just focused on what you want to do. And there's no communicating with you because it's like bouncing off of metal. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say my images brought them about, my wooden image and metal God ordained them. What is he referring to here? He's probably referring to what he's about to describe, which is God's promise to release his people and to bring deliverance through Cyrus. And we've seen this all the way throughout Isaiah 40 to 48 is what separates God from all the others is his ability to know in advance what's going to happen and to declare it in advance. That's what separates him from the idols. And here he's saying, I knew how stubborn you were. I knew how hard-hearted and rebellious you were. And I knew that if I did not say this in advance and predict it with accuracy and with specificity that when it actually came about and you were brought home back to Jerusalem, somehow you would give your idols credit for it. Somehow you would say that you, you called upon Baal or upon the gods of of Babylon, or somehow you invoked the name of these idols and you manipulated them into allowing you to go back home. God says, I was not going to allow that for the sake of my own name and my glory. So I announced it in advance. So there would be no mistake of who is responsible for your release. It's the Lord, not, not your gods, not the idols that you've worshiped in the past. So you're without excuse. So Israel's stubborn, Israel's stubbornness. But then the rest of the passage really then focuses on God's grace. And so you, you have attention. You have Israel being stubborn and hard-hearted, but you have God still willing to show mercy and grace to them. And even his grace is even more stubborn, you might even say, than their stubbornness. His grace is relentless, and it continues to pursue stubborn, hard-hearted sinners and to bring them home to himself. 
And so Isaiah reveals to them God's relentless grace. And he reveals God's, God's goodness to them in several different ways. First of all, he describes God's patience to them, that God was patient with them. He says in verse six, you have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. So the former things were God's words of being taken into captivity in Babylon. Those were the former things. So what's the new things? The new things is God's words of deliverance of what he's about to do, that he's about to rescue them and bring them home. So you've got the former things, which are words of warning and judgment going into Babylon. Now you have the new things, which are messages of hope and deliverance of God bringing them home from Babylon. In verse seven, he says, they are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. Still referring to the new things. In other words, these are new. This is something that God is revealing to them, what he's about to do. And he says, this is not something you knew about. This is something that I'm revealing to you. And one of the commentators that I read suggested, you know, why did God not, when, when he was sending them into Babylon, why didn't he go ahead and reveal the rescue? And one of the commentators suggested that, that Israel in its current state at that time would have abused that knowledge. And so God was patiently waiting to reveal this truth to them at a time after which they had gone through the affliction of trial in which they would now come home. And God is revealing now anew his grace to them at a time that he believes is right. So he's revealing a new work that he's about to perform, which is their salvation. In verse eight, he says, you have neither heard nor understood from of old, your ears have not been open. Well, do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. So God just saying, I know how you've been throughout your history. I know from the time of your inception, from the time of your beginning, you've been a hard-hearted, rebellious people. And we've seen that recently in Exodus, haven't we? That here they are, brand new, right out of Egypt, brand new, right out of deliverance, brand new, a new covenant people with God, and they're bowing down before a golden calf. God says, I knew how rebellious you were from the very beginning and all throughout your history. But he's still abundantly gracious to them. And so he says in verse 9, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. Why did God not completely wipe out his people with the Babylonians? Because he was patient. Because he was merciful. Even in judgment, which they rightly deserved, right? They rightly deserved that judgment, yet God was patient with them. There was mercy even in the midst of judgment. So he withheld his full hand of judgment that he could have done against the people of Israel. And in addition to that, he is now providing for a salvation and release of a remnant that will come back home. 
Here's the key. Why did God do that? Not because of Israel's sake. Right? Not because they deserved it. Not because of of any merits in them at all. If God had treated them according to their merits, they would have been wiped out. But God rescued a remnant and is bringing home a remnant. Why? For his glory. For his name. And Isaiah affirms it here. We can see places all across the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, where we come to a theological conclusion that everything that God does, he does for his own glory. Everything. Why did he create the world? For his own glory and pleasure. Why does he save sinners such as us? For his own glory and pleasure. Why will he bring everything to a conclusion in in a glorious kingdom of new heavens and a new earth? Why? For his own glory, for his own pleasure. Paul quotes from Isaiah often, and he comes to the conclusion in Romans 11 that everything is from God, through God, and for God. Everything. Everything originates with him. Everything exists and continues to exist because of him. Everything has as its end and climax and goal the glory of God. And I was reading one, one of the uh, sources that I was reading had a very helpful point, And that is in two things. One, from God's side, there is nothing higher, nothing better that God could do than to glorify his own name. You know, from our perspective, that seems selfish, right? Self-focused. If, if I were to say my whole purpose for my existence is to bring glory and honor to my own name, well, we would say, well, that guy has a really big head, right? And, and boy, it's all about him, very narcissistic, right? Why is it not wrong for God to say that about himself? Because there's none higher than God, Right? There's none higher than God. So who else could God honor as the most precious thing in existence other than himself? If he were to honor anything else above himself, God would be guilty of committing idolatry. May it never be. God forbid, right? So the ultimate that God can do is to honor himself because he is the highest and greatest being. But then the second point related to that is that that is also for our highest good. That is also for our highest good. I think John Piper has been very helpful in showing the relationship between glorifying God and our happiness, our enjoyment. He he refers to the first catechism question in the Westminster Catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He more tightly links those together and says that really what that is saying is, is those are not two separate things. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are not two separate things. He's saying the way we enjoy the way we enjoy God is by glorifying him forever. 
and vice versa. By glorifying him forever, we enjoy him. And so we receive ultimate joy and ultimate hope, ultimate fulfillment when our highest goal matches the same highest goal of God, which is to bring honor and glory to him. And there there have been times when I've likened it this way, that when we don't seek that ultimate goal for which God made us, which is to seek his glory and enjoy him, when we don't seek seek that, it's like our lives are trying to fit a, a round peg in a square hole. Or like you're trying to beat in a nail with a screwdriver. It's like you're not using you're not using your life for the end in which for which it was created. And you have frustration and you have discouragement and you have problems, you have hurts. And but when you use your life for the end for which it was created, you find joy and you find pleasure and you find hope and and satisfaction and fulfillment because that's what you were made for. And so there is a harmony in glorifying God and enjoying him and enjoying life because that's what he made us for. So everything that God does is for his own glory. And also he reveals in this not only, so there's the God side of why God did this. He did it for his own glory. But he also reveals the the human side of why he did this, what he was doing for them. And that is he was seeking to purify them. He was seeking to refine them. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And what he's saying is through the exile in Babylon, my purpose in that was, yes, it was a punishment, chastisement for your sin, but it was also intended to have a restorative, purifying testing and trying effect to make you better, to bring you out refined and pure and strong. And God often does that, doesn't he? God often use difficulties in our lives to strengthen our faith, to strip the, the, the dross, the impurities off of our lives, the sins. And that's what he was seeking to do with the Israelite people is not just to punish them for previous sin, but also to purify them for future holiness and future fellowship with God. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And what is involved here is the the name of God and what would ultimately happen to his people. If God were to ultimately let his people be destroyed and become non-existent, what would that say about the name of God to the nations? Moses uses that exact same argument when he's pleading for God to not destroy Israel after the golden calf. What would the nation say, God, if you rescue them from Egypt and then bring them out here into the desert to destroy them? So God says, for the sake of my name, I'm not going to destroy you, but I'm saving a remnant. And for the sake of my name, I'm going to bring you home so that my name will be honored, not treated as common, defamed, profane, unholy. And so God is patient with his people. God is also open in the sense that that he openly declares his purposes and shares what he is about to do for his people. In verse 12, he says, listen to me, 
Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And we see those words in Revelation too, don't we? I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega. Meaning that, that God is the beginning. He's the source. He's the creator of all things. But he's also the, the goal, the end, the culmination of all things. And, and this is what separates him from all other idols that are nothing. That's why he says, there's no, there's no other one than me. I'm the first and the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Just describing the creative power of God, right? And again, these have been the two things that Isaiah has referenced time and time again that separate Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, from all the other gods of the nations. Is one, he is the sole creator of the universe. He brought everything into existence. And the other thing that Isaiah has emphasized is his ability to plan the future and declare the future. So God brought it all into existence. He can command it with his voice. And not only that, at the beginning, but he can also know the end, right? And he can declare what is going to happen. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? What's about to happen? The deliverance of his people. Have any of those gods said this in advance? Have any of those gods given you this hope through their revelations? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. Again, he's not named here specifically, but we've seen his name before, haven't we? And that's Cyrus. Cyrus was called earlier in this section of Isaiah, the anointed one, the one that God had chosen for a specific purpose. So this ally, this friend of God, the one that God chose in his providential will, he is going to use him to accomplish his purposes. Now, when he, when God calls him an ally, a friend, if you will, don't take that in the sense that Cyrus became a believer in Yahweh or that, or that Cyrus was saved and became a child of God. God is using this here just in a providential sense of, of I have chosen Cyrus and he will do my will. He will accomplish my bidding. Verse 15, he says, I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him. That is Cyrus. I will bring him and he will succeed in his mission. So Cyrus is the Persian king that came along and conquered Babylon. And God says, I'm the one that raised him up and I'm the one that gave him success in all that he did. Come near me. And listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his spirit. So the Lord is saying, I, I've declared this openly, that I'm going to use this ally, Cyrus, to accomplish my purposes. I've said it in advance. I've said it so that everyone can hear. And when it happens, I will be there so that everyone will know that I'm the one who brought it about. Then there is this very interesting statement at the end of verse 16. 
And now the sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his spirit. And there's a, there's a debate in the commentaries about who this me is. Who is this me who's being sent, uh, endowed with the spirit of the Lord? Really, the two options most likely are, well, I guess you could have three, actually. One of the options is it's Isaiah, the prophet. He's talking about himself, that, that the Lord has sent him in his prophetic ministry with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly a possibility. One other option, or another option is that perhaps it's talking about Cyrus, this, this ally of the Lord that the Lord is going to use to accomplish his purposes. But in the context, Cyrus was, wasn't really described in the first person like this. The other option, and probably the one that most evangelical conservative commentators go with, is that this is referring to the servant of the Lord that is going to come on more fully in display in chapter 49. Who is this servant of the Lord? Ultimately, it is one chosen by the Lord to accomplish the Lord's purpose. As we move forward in biblical revelation, we see the one who ultimately fulfills that is Jesus. That this servant of the Lord who, who is going to come is the one who is anointed by him, the one who is endowed with his spirit. In Isaiah chapter 61, the servant says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Yeah, Larry. Well, not necessarily. Some t- it depends on the translation. Some translations might do that. Some others might not. And one of the reasons why they might not is, is to leave. If you, if you put a, 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 a capital on it, then you pretty much say this is the only way to understand this passage. Where if, if you leave it without a capital letter, you're, you're allowing the reader to make a determination about who this might refer to. And even and some translations don't, don't even always capitalize pronouns that refer to deity. So there, there's even a debate about that with English style of whether you do that or not. So some translations do, some don't. But my guess is that they've, at this point, they've left it open to how you want to interpret this passage and who you want to identify that person as. I would tend to more understanding it as the servant of the Lord. And if that's the case, you actually have here a very, it's not right out there out in the open, but it is a, a witness to the Trinity, isn't it? Because if this is referring to the servant who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he says, the sovereign Lord has sent me, who would that be? The father, right? The father has sent me and he has endowed me with his spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's, it, if we understand it as the Messiah, then it's a very similar passage to what we see at the baptism of Jesus. When we see the father saying, here's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see the Holy Spirit of God descending upon him. So it's an instance in which we have three members of the Trinity. And, and there are some who, who take it this way. And I, I think there's good reason to do that in this passage. So, but this is a part of God's promise of what he's going to do for his people in the future. And I think it's helpful if we see kind of a continuum or, or a growth of this prophecy. And I've mentioned this before, kind of a telescoping idea. 
that, that the initial fulfillment of these prophecies is for the Israelites to come home from Babylon and reestablish their presence in Jerusalem and in, in Judah. But that's going to pave the way for greater things to come, isn't it? So this group, this remnant of people that come back from Babylon and reestablish in Jerusalem, they become the ancestors of the people that give birth to the Messiah, don't they? So out of this remnant of people that comes home from Babylon comes the Messiah. And so the Messiah comes and, and he accomplishes his work in his first coming of ministering and, and preaching and dying on the cross, being our suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and then rising from the dead. But even then, there's more yet to be fulfilled, isn't there? there there's still a consummation of the kingdom that's still coming. So I think maybe it's helpful to see that, that these prophecies are unfolding in stages, if you will. But that all of those stages are linked together and kind of like a continuous unfolding of the one prophecy. So this is what God's going to do for his people. And then we see God's instruction, verses 17 through 19, just to focus on God as the one who gives his word and teaches his people. In verse 17, he says, this is what the Lord says, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way that you should go. It's interesting that the Lord refers to himself as their redeemer in this passage, because in just a couple of verses, we're going to see very clear references back to the Exodus in which God brought them out of Egypt. Well, what's, what's God about to do again? He's about to bring them out of Egypt again, if you will, bring them out of Babylon and bring them to the promised land. So he redeemed them out of Egypt. He's about to redeem them again out of Babylon. He refers to himself as their redeemer. But then he emphasizes the fact that he is their teacher and he is teaching them what is right. He is directing them in the path where they should go. And as opposed to their previous existence, when they often ignored the word of the Lord and chose to go their own way, this now tried and purified people coming out is to be a people who listens to and obeys the word of the Lord. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well being like the waves of the sea. And I think what he's referring to here is this is, this is God's heart, his compassion for his people, and reminding them that if they had listened to his prophets who warned them, that you would not have this you would not have just a remnant left. You would have had a much larger people of the Lord and a, a people and a land of peace and provision. And, and this, is, this is all tied to the covenant in Deuteronomy. Covenant blessings, covenant curses. If you listen to the word of the Lord, there's blessing, there's peace, there's prosperity. If you don't listen to the word of the Lord, there's judgment and eventually captivity into your enemy's hands. So they followed the other path, didn't they? they? They didn't listen to the words of the Lord. They ended up in captivity. And the Lord's just reminding them here, if you had listened to my words, you would have been in peace and prosperity. And he uses the image of peace like a river and a well like the ways of the sea. And probably the idea of 
both the river and the sea is that those things never run dry. A river is always flowing and you can't empty the sea, right? It's, it's bottomless. So the idea is of peace and well-being never ending, limitless supply. If you had listened, he says, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their names would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. And this references what God promised Abraham, doesn't it? God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as the sand on the seashore. But God is saying here, you didn't listen to me. Therefore, all that is left is a remnant. If you had listened to me, then you would have been as the sand on the seashore. In other words, you'd have been growing and large and prosperous and in peace if you had obeyed my word. But now there is a remnant. But yet there's still a remnant, isn't there? It's still by God's grace that there's a remnant. And then he finishes in the last few verses talking about his redemption, what he's going to do for them in rescuing them. And he says prophetically, leave Babylon. There's a time coming. There's an opportunity that will arise when my ally Cyrus comes on the throne. He will declare that you, you may leave and go back home if you wish. And the prophet Isaiah is saying, go. When that opportunity presents itself, when you have that open door, leave and go back home. Flee from the Babylonians, just like in the Exodus, right? Don't stay here in Egypt. That night of the death of the firstborn, that door opened up, didn't it? That gate opened up from Egypt. Leave. It's time to go. When Cyrus says, you may go home to Jerusalem, go. Don't, you know, just have your bags ready, just like in the Exodus. Unleavened bread and move out and go home. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So when the opportunity presents itself, go. Announce what good news it is. And remember who provided that good news. That the Lord is the one who, who did this. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There's your specific reference back to the Exodus, isn't there? As they're leaving Egypt, as they're wandering through the wilderness, they cried out, where's the water? Where's the food? And God provided it for them. And what Isaiah is saying here is just like out of Egypt, God will provide and care for his people out of Babylon and he will bring them home like a second Exodus. He will watch over them. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It's an interesting conclusion, isn't it? It's kind of, kind of out of nowhere, talking about what the Lord's going to do for his people and redeem them. And when the opportunity presents itself, leave and shout for joy and announce that the Lord has done this. And then this last closing warning, there's no peace for those who disobey the Lord, for the wicked. And I think just a warning, a, a reminder of, of how foolish it is to put your trust in the nations and to bow down and worship the gods of those nations because that is wickedness before the Lord and if you do that, you will find no peace. 
And so the Lord is purifying his people. He's seeking to make a new people, a redeemed people coming up out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem. But he still warns them. Just as there were disobedient people who came up out of Egypt, right? God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, but there were still rebellious people in that crowd. And there was no peace for them. God judged them. So also he's warning this remnant. When you come up out of Babylon, continue to trust in the Lord. Listen to his words. Because those who rebel against him will just fall right back into the same condemnation. So continue to trust in the Lord. And there's no peace for those who are wicked. I think there are probably a a few applications that we could make from this passage. One, I think really clearly, is that God seeks the glory of his own name. And, And that has an application to all of our lives. And that whatever we do, no matter how mundane it seems, whether it's you know, something what we might call religious or spiritual, like going to church or worshiping or teaching a Bible lesson, or whether it's something more mundane, like driving to work or doing our job or doing a chore at home, whatever we do, we can do it in the honor of the Lord, can't we? We can do it for his glory and his name. So I think that's an application. Just remember what, what we're here for and where our central focus should be. Also, I think a clear lesson from this passage is a, a warning and a reminder to listen to the words of the Lord with an open and contrite heart and not adopting a, a stubborn, closed-minded stance toward God's words. And then also, I think in verse 10, we saw a, really a reminder to us that of how God operates in the lives of his people. And that not just in the Old Testament, because we see Peter saying the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, that a lot of times God, the way that God works in his people is by bringing afflictions, bringing trials into their lives so that he might mature them and purify them. And that's why James says in James chapter 1, count it all joy, right? When you fall into various kinds of trials and temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith brings about patience and a completed work of, of growth and maturity in Christ. So there's a purpose for, for the difficult things that we go through. And that perspective is helpful.